you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them with me to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. We have recently entered a new section in the Gospel of Luke. As you remember, as you may recall, from chapter 9 through this triumphal entry, which we considered a couple passages ago, Jesus had been on this journey to Jerusalem with his disciples. And now Jesus is in this holy city. And in verse 1 of chapter 20, we learn that he is in the temple teaching. And then in chapter 21, verses 37 through 38, we also uh, are told by Luke that Jesus continues to be in the temple teaching. Scholars refer to this as inclusio. It's like brackets that encompass a section. So this section of chapter 20, chapter 21, the section in which Jesus is in the temple courts teaching and interacting with the religious leaders of the first century. So Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word to you. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or, who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do you not believe me? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat, uh, beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May the Lord write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, as I mentioned last week, Jesus is in his Passion Week. He is just days away from uh, celebrating Passover. 
in which he will institute the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, with his disciples. He's days away from his crucifixion. And as I also mentioned last week, during Passover, thousands of Jews would flock to Jerusalem to celebrate this holy festival in God's holy city. And it was traditional for these Jewish pilgrims during Passover to sing Psalms 113 to 118. We have to remember that Psalms were God's original songbook. They were uh, uh, the means by which people sang praises to their Lord. And Psalms 113 and 118 were the Psalms that these Jewish pilgrims would sing during Passover. These Psalms are referred to as the Egyptian Halal Psalms. Halal is the Hebrew word for worship, praise the Lord. And if you remember a few passages ago during Jesus' triumphal entry, as Jesus was mounted on this donkey riding into Jerusalem, the disciples in his midst praised him by quoting directly from Psalm 118, a song that they likely had recently sung. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in this passage before us, Jesus himself takes upon his lips Another verse from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus sees himself as this stone, this cornerstone that the psalmist spoke about centuries before. Now we all know that the foundation of any building or structure is, is vital. Very important. And arguably the most important aspect of that foundation is its cornerstone. In the ancient world, a, a cornerstone bore the weight of two intersecting walls. So Jesus applies this metaphor to himself. He is the cornerstone. Now this psalmist in Psalm 118 may be referring to the actual construction of Solomon's temple, which, occurred in, which we see occurring in 1 Kings, and particularly 1 Kings 5, where he had many of his workers quarry out stones for the building and construction of God's house, permanent house. Now, the psalmist may be referring to one of these stones that the builders quarried, but then realized it was too big, wrong shape, and they set it aside. But then, later on during the building process, ironically, in a great reversal, that stone became the cornerstone, arguably the most important piece in the construction of the temple. But insofar as this, this verse is used as a metaphor, uh, in, in their original context, it, it may have referred to Israel's king, King David. Think about his life. If there was a real sense in which he was a stone rejected by the builders. His own family didn't believe in him. His fathers, his brothers doubted him that he could be the leader of God's people, a simple shepherd. But yet, he was God's appointed cornerstone. God's king who was the, uh, a means of foreshadowing the Christ who is to come. Israel herself also could be thought of as this metaphorical cornerstone, a stone that the builders rejected. Nations, many nations rejected Israel. They were exiled by the Babylonians and the Syrians. Even at, during this time in the first century, the Romans were ruling over them. But yet, during the Mosaic Covenant, Israel was God's appointed means of displaying his glory to them. But here in this, 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 this passage, Jesus tells us that he is the ultimate reference. 
of Psalm 118, verse 22. He is the stone that will be rejected by the builders, by his own people, and the stone that will become the cornerstone. This metaphor was deeply influential on the early church, so much so that Peter refers to this metaphor twice. In Acts chapter 4, as he's giving testimonies to Jewish leadership, he alludes to Psalm 118, alludes to this metaphor that Jesus applies to himself. And then in 1 Peter 2, he fleshes out this metaphor and applies it to the Christian church. We also know from the historian Josephus that the post-apostolic church, as early as the second century, began to refer to Christ as the stone in light of this passage and many others. So this metaphor, this metaphor which Jesus applies to himself, was deeply influential on the apostolic church and and the early post-apostolic church. Jesus is the stone, the cornerstone that the psalmist speaks of. Well, if he's the cornerstone, this begs the question, the cornerstone of what? Now, where is Jesus speaking these words? The temple, right? The temple courts. This temple likely is a temple that Herod himself either is, is constructing or has recently finished constructing, a beautiful temple. And he's in these, this, these uh, temple courts teaching and saying that he is the cornerstone. This is deeply symbolic. He's teaching the people in his hearing that he is the cornerstone in God's new creation temple. He is the cornerstone in God's new creation temple. So I'd like us to consider that point this, this morning, how Christ is the cornerstone of God's new creation temple. Uh, first, I'd like us to consider how the authority of this cornerstone. In verses 1 through 8, Jesus asserts his rightful authority to say what he says, to say what uh, he will say at the end of that next parable, that he is the cornerstone. Now, again, in verse 1, Luke sets the context for us and tells us that Jesus is teaching in the temple, preaching the gospel in these temple courts. And he's teaching in the presence not only of these people, these people who had been hanging on his every word, but also in the presence of these Jewish leaders. Now, these Jewish leaders had what they thought was concrete authority to be in the temple, concrete authority to exercise religious oversight over Israel at this time. They were the ones who had an elite formal education. They were the ones who they thought had the right kind of birth. They were born into high-status families. And Jesus, on the other hand, seemed not to possess any of these things. In their mind, he was born to simple, humble parents. Joseph and Mary from the humble village of Nazareth. And Jesus didn't have this elite formal education. He seemed to be a simple carpenter, but yet... Nevertheless, he spoke with an uncanny knowledge of these sacred scriptures and said outrageous things, things that either prove that he was the divine son of God or prove that he was a blasphemous false prophet. Consequently, these religious leaders are wanting to know, wanting to know the ground of his authority for saying these outrageous things. Is your authority from man or is it from God? Where, where, do you, where do you find your authority to say these things that we've never heard anybody say? 
And Jesus, in response, res- uh, answers this question with a question. Notice, notice Jesus's, Jesus' response. He says, well, let me ask you a question. Was the baptism of John, was that from God or was that from man? Now here, when Jesus refers to the baptism of John, he's referring to the whole ministry of John the Baptist. Now recall what the angel of the Lord said to Zechariah, John's, uh, John's father, in Luke chapter 1. He came to, to Zechariah and said, Your son, the son that will be born to you, he will be possessed by the Spirit from, from the womb. And this, this son will be a forerunner to the Messiah, to the Christ. His whole ministry can be thought of as a finger pointing to the Christ, preparing the way for the Messiah to come, to do what uh, God's people have been waiting for him to do for, for centuries. And so, if you accept the legitimacy of the ministry of John, you are then, in effect, accepting the legitimate authority of Christ. They're a package deal. John testified as the last Old Testament prophet to the work of Christ. So here Jesus is putting the the religious leaders in in quite the predicament because they recognize that if they acknowledge the legitimacy of John's ministry, which they don't want to do, they already rejected this ministry in chapter 7. But if they accept the ministry of of John, then they will implicitly, uh, implicitly be accepting the ministry of Jesus. They go hand in hand because John was testifying to Christ. But if they deny the legitimacy of John's ministry, then they fear that the people will stone them. Deuteronomy 13 spoke of, of how the people should stone false prophets who speak blasphemous words. And so they're in this, this between a rock and a hard place. They don't know what to do. Last thing they want to do is give legitimacy to Christ, but they also care about their lives. They don't want to be stoned. So notice the response. They, they come forth with, with the answer of no comment. We are refusing to answer this question. And then Jesus, in turn, says, if you're not answering my question, I'm not going to answer your question. So the implicit confession that's being told here by Jesus is that he does have legitimate authority. Divine authority. Because if John is legitimate as the last Old Testament prophet, the Elijah who was to come, then Jesus is who he said he was. He is the divine son of God. And this is something that religious leaders do not want to acknowledge. The authority, the authority of Christ as the cornerstone, as the Son of God, as the Messiah. We next come across this parable. And in this parable, we see uh, this divine authority, which Jesus has just asserted, being rejected by the religious leaders. And this parable is an illustration of that rejection. Now, in, in verse 9, Luke tells us that Jesus after this interaction with the religious leaders, began to tell the people a parable. Remember, these are the people that were, at the end of chapter 19, hanging on Jesus' every word. 
And so he then proceeds to tell these people a parable. And no doubt the religious leaders were within earshot of, of this parable. And this is the last of Jesus' parable in last of Jesus' parables in Luke's gospel. It's one of the most allegorical parables. It's pretty easy to identify the characters in this parable. And in it, we see an allusion to Jesus' own death, something that will occur just days from him speaking this. And this parable all hinges around this vineyard, right? That's sort of the context of this parable, a vineyard. In the background of this parable, likely is Isaiah chapter 5, where God, through the lips of Isaiah, compares Israel to a vineyard. A vineyard, and God's purpose for the vineyard of Israel was that they would produce lush grapes, that they would be fruitful. But yet, instead of being fruitful, they produced wild and sour grapes. They disobeyed God, disobeyed the terms of God's covenant, and thus God says that he's going to come in judgment and in curse and devour this vineyard. Well, Isaiah is not the only prophet that speaks of Israel as a vineyard. God, through the lips of Hosea and Jeremiah and Joel and even the psalmist in Psalm 80, allude to Israel being a vineyard. This was how Israel thought of their national identity in a way that it's similar to, as Americans, we might look to the bald eagle or Canadians to the maple leaf. Israel looked to the metaphor of a vineyard. That was their national identity. That's how God spoke of them through the, the lips of the, of the prophets. In fact, in this temple, the temple that Jesus was standing and teaching the people, if you would have went to the, the, the doorway that would have um, led to the holy place, you would have encountered this sculpture that consisted of a vine, a vine made of gold, and these clumps of grapes made of jewels. This idea of vineyard was at the center of Israel's national consciousness. Well, who are the characters of this, of this parable? Well, the owner of the vineyard is, of course, God the Father. And the vineyard is, as I mentioned, Israel, and even more specifically, Israel in the land of Canaan, as they worship in the temple, God's holy house. The tenants are the Jewish leaders, the spiritual shepherds of God's people. The servants that the owner of the vineyard sends to these tenants are the prophets, the prophets that God sends over and over and over again to call his people to repentance. But rather than repenting, his people persecute and kill these prophets. These servants are God's prophets. And of course, the beloved son of the owner is Jesus, really the last prophet, the true prophet who comes and is rejected by his own, the stone that the builders reject, and is killed and crucified. So notice verse 16. Verse 16 is the response of the owner of the vineyard to his repeated attempts of reaching Israel by sending servants, by sending his own son. And in verse 16, we see that he will come in judgment. He, the owner, will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Here, Jesus is alluding to this great shift in redemptive history that occurs in his coming. When he comes... God then no longer works with a particular nation, an ethnic nation, but his focus is now on the nations. 
Paul says in Romans 3 that a Jew is not one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. Galatians 3, Paul says that one is a child of Abraham, not by race, but by faith. So now, this new vineyard that is created with the coming of Christ is a vineyard that's open, yes, to Jews who come by faith, but also to Gentiles, the nations who embrace this son of the owner of the vineyard by true faith. We also see that uh, Jesus tells, uh, tells us that this vineyard will be taken out from the stewardship of the tenants and given to some other people. This is an allusion to how the apostles are now going to be uh, the ones who carry on Jesus' mission. This motley crew that's been following Jesus for the last three years are going to be God's chosen representatives to carry on the baton of his mission to bring Gentiles into his vineyard. Then at the end of this parable, Jesus uh, turns to another metaphor, a metaphor which I alluded to at the beginning from Psalm 118, verse 22, when he says that Christ when Christ says that he is the stone that the psalmist spoke of, the stone that has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected, it's referring to the crucifixion, something that will occur just days from him speaking this. But in his resurrection, Jesus will be the cornerstone. He will prove to be the cornerstone, the cornerstone of this new creation temple. But in verse 18, Jesus again reminds his hearers of the judgment that awaits those who reject him. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The image that we have here, it's like a blind man who is uh, trying to proceed through the night and, and stumbles upon a great rock and, and falls down, or someone on the bottom, at the bottom of the mountain awaiting a great avalanche. That's how Jesus speaks of those who are outside of Christ. You're awaiting Jesus as the stone who will crush his enemies. And this is, yes, true for the Jewish leaders in his immediate context, but this is also true for everyone who is outside of Christ, everyone who turns their back on him. There is a, a flood coming, a flood that's going to be infinitely greater than the flood that came during Noah's day. But apart from Christ, there is no ark to safely go through that judgment. And so Jesus is, is reminding all of us that there are consequences for turning one's back on Christ. A crushing stone awaits that person. So here we see the stone rejected rejected by these Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. Well, I already mentioned that this metaphor that Jesus takes up here about him being the stone was deeply influential on the early church. The apostles take this metaphor and flesh it out for us in many of their epistles. And so what I'd like us to do is now briefly consider how this metaphor is fleshed out for us in the rest of the New Testament. It's a very important doctrine that is established here. So here I'd like us to consider the, the rest of this new creation temple. So if Christ is the cornerstone of the new creation temple, who makes up the rest of the foundation? Who makes up the walls of this temple? So again, Christ is 
saying here that he is the cornerstone, the most important aspect of this new creation temple. But who makes up the rest of the foundation? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He says that uh, the Gentiles are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Do you hear that? Christ is the cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets are the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and the New Testament prophets are the foundation. Well, what about everybody else? What about you and, and me today? What about every other New Covenant Christian? Where is their place in this new creation temple? Well, listen to how Peter fleshes out this metaphor in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this, As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Again, he's fleshing out Psalm 118.22. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says that Christians, ordinary Christians, are like living stones, living bricks that make up the walls of this new creation temple. Paul also alludes this reality in Ephesians 2.19, which is the verse before uh, the verse I recently read when he says, speaking to Gentiles, again, speaking to Gentiles, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members, members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this new creation temple that Jesus is alluding to here as he's teaching in this old covenant temple, this new creation temple consists of Christ as the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets as the foundation, and then all subsequent Christians as the living bricks that make up the walls of this new creation temple. That's the image that Jesus is giving us here. So if you remember the Jesus' teaching in end of Matthew 7, the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man builds his, house, builds his house upon the rock. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And when the floods come, it's the foolish man who's going to be swept away. So here, again, we're called to build upon the foundation of Christ. That's the only means by which we will pass through that judgment which is to come safely through the ark of Christ. I'd like to conclude by reflecting upon one of the most practical applications of this metaphor that we are given here and throughout the, uh, throughout the New Testament. And one of the most practical applications of this metaphor has to do with whether or not we should expect the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit to be active today. Those gifts of, of speaking in tongues, of prophecy, and of healings. This doctrine, this metaphor, is a huge, huge answer to that question. Remember, the apostles were members or part of the foundation of the church. And we know that the apostolic office was unique and temporary. After the death of the, the original apostles, we do not expect more apostles uh, to, be, to rise up. 
That office was unique. It was temporary for uh, that, that foundation era, the foundation laying era of the church. And so if the office of apostle is unique and temporary to the first century, we should also expect, expect that the gifts, the apostolic gifts are also unique and temporary. These gifts of prophecy, these gifts of speaking in tongues and of healing, this is why uh, we, I'm, I don't handle snakes on Sunday mornings. I'm not an apostle. Uh, we don't belong to the foundation-laying era of the church. The apostles were unique, an aspect of God's uh, work of redemption. And so the apostolic office, the apostolic gifts are unique and temporary. And so we have to ask ourselves, what era of this new creation temple do we belong to? We don't belong to the foundation. We belong to the, the brick-laying era of the church. This is why when Paul speaks to Timothy, who's just an ordinary pastor, he doesn't say, Timothy, make sure that you are giving your people new revelations of the Spirit every Sunday. No, he says, preach the word. He says, hold fast to the pattern of sound words that you heard from me, an apostle. That's the ordinary ministry of this era of bricklaying. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says that we should not lay any other foundation other than that which is laid in Christ. Christ laid that foundation through the work of the apostles, and we build upon that foundation. And so in this era of the church, bricks are laid, living bricks are laid through the ministry of the word, the inscripturated word, the administration of the sacraments and church discipline and discipleship. Those are the means that God uses. And the apostolic office and gifts are unique to that foundation-laying era of the church. So congregation of Christ, in this passage, Jesus asserts a, a very foundational point. He, he reminds us, he tells us, he instructs us that he is that stone which was rejected by builders. You see that played out in this crucifixion. But yet in his resurrection, he becomes a cornerstone of this new creation temple that he is continuing to build even to this day. And so this passage is calling you, calling you to come to this living stone. Come to him by faith and be assured then that you will be preserved through his final judgment as he comes as a crushing rock. 